with me, Craig Barton, and my co-host, Joe Morgan. Hello, Joe. Hello, Craig. Now, Joe, before we even start talking about it, we've got to discuss the issue that is on everybody's lips. How on earth do you say this conference that we're at? And the reason I'm going to say this is I've, I call it BCME. I have heard somebody in the opening plenary refer to it as BICME. I have heard people around dinner saying BECME. And you said to me, Kettering, <laughs> book me. So what, what are you calling it now? Because we need, we need to decide on yeah, this. Yeah, book me, baby. I think that's wrong. Um, I, think, I think let's go for bick me. Yeah, but I'm going gonna... to... Why is it bick Because here's a quiz for you. What does it stand for, BCME? Okay, I know this. Um, British Congress of Mathematics Education. I have never been to a congress before, so this is exciting. But why isn't it then br- brick me? I'll be taking the eye from because I assume they're taking the the eye from British, right? Is that what they're going for with the bit? Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of that, but you're right. It should be brick me. Let's go brick me. Maybe on this podcast we'll go brick me. Right. So we're at brick me 2018. This is the end of day one. We've just had our tea, and it's time to do our reflection. I'm going to try and do this uh, every single day. Now, I arrived at the conference around about lunchtime. You had a lie-in, Joe, so you, to, you, you rocked up about three o'clock. So I was at the first session, um, and the first session, the opening plenary, by, and I'm going to hand over to you here, David, how would you go for his I'm uh, going for Spiegelhalter, but I don't know. Spiegelhalter. So I was at David Spiegelhalter's uh, session, and it, I've heard David speak before, so I think you've heard him speak mm. before as well. Yes, I have. Um, and he loves probability, mm. um, absolutely obsessed with that. And it, uh, the opening plenary was, was absolutely fascinating. He made the point that adults and students need to be data literate and we need to train people to be able to evaluate statistical claims and that data should generate questions. Now, a couple of things, Joe, that you can absolutely love from this, right? So straight away, I've got an Excel fact for you. Oh, I love Excel. (laughs) So here you go. So Excel produces, by default, dodgy uh, statistical diagrams if... So say you're plotting a bar chart. If you plot a vertical bar chart, by default, it starts the y-axis at zero. Okay. Okay. If you plot a horizontal bar chart, it will start it at the lowest, close to the lowest data value. So if, for example, your two bars are comparing 50 to 70, Mm -hmm. then if you plot it horizontally, it looks like it's a massive jump because it may only started at like 40 instead of zero. So if you're looking for a quick way of doing misleading diagrams, Mm -hmm. Excel by default already does it. So there's a little... I didn't know that. There you go. So there's one for listeners straight away. Um, a A thing David spoke about that I'm obsessed with is framing. Now, I don't know if you've come across this, Joe, but I, I, I love um, Kahneman Traversky's work, and they, they talk a lot about this. And this is where, if you see in the paper a headline that says, uh, 99% of London's youths have never committed a violent crime. That mm-hmm. sounds quite positive. Yeah. But if you flip it the other way around and say, firstly, 1% of London's youths have committed a crime, mm-hmm. that sounds a bit more, whoa, flipping heck. But then if you actually put a number on it and work out that 1% of London's youths is actually 10,000 
people mm -hmm. and then the headline is 10,000 London youths have committed a crime, mm -hmm. then it sounds a lot more striking and a lot more negative than if you put it the other way around, 99% mm -hmm. haven't. So that I thought that was interesting in terms of how it's not just about the raw numbers, it's how that's presented. So I thought that I was... I always find that's um, interesting when they talk about pass rates at GCSE. The, the you know if you say how many students actually failed then it's really upsetting yes. but they actually say you know how many passed or even like in a school so um, my school our GCSE results are great we get 88% of our students pass the GCSE um, but then that there's 12% that, that don't pass and um, and it's just the way you word it exactly. is, is then gives you what you can focus on and actually you're right, the way that, you know, the, the sort of direction you come from Absolutely. makes such a difference. Yeah, so I thought that was great, the, the framing effect and how it's not just about numbers, it's about the order we present them. So I love that. But then this is, this is the big takeaway I had um, from this. So uh, David's point was we, we sometimes dive into probability when we're teaching too early. And we start with the tree diagrams and all this when kids haven't actually got a concept of what probability is all about. Mm -hmm. So he says the question we should be asking is, what does it mean for 100 people? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give you a little example here, Jay. You're going to love this. So he did an example about bowel cancer. So nice, nice and happy, happy for <laughs> listeners at home. Um, and he put a headline up from a newspaper that said, uh, there's an 18% increase of getting bowel cancer if you eat 50 grams of bacon every day. Right. So that sounds quite scary, right? Thinking, oh, flipping heck, I'm 18% increase in bowel cancer. But he says the question you've got to be asking first is how many people get bowel cancer for a start? Well, where's your kind of baseline here? And it turns out 6% of people will get bowel cancer anyway. So it's not an 18% increase from a big, big number. It's an 18% increase from 6%. Mm -hmm. And if you ask the question, if you forget percentages, Forget probability and say, okay, if we started with 100 people, mm -hmm. six of them, on average, are going to get bowel cancer at some point in their lives, whatever they do. And if all those 100 people eat bacon every single day, mm -hmm. it's actually going to mean just one more of those 100 people get bowel cancer. Mm -hmm. So if you present it like that, it's it's firstly, it, it stops people making erroneous uh, assumptions, but also it makes it a lot more kind of tangible and a lot you can get the concepts better mm -hmm. than if it's vague and abstract in terms of percentages so the thing i took away from um, david's presentation was hold fire on the technical bits of probability as long as possible mm -hmm. frame everything in kind of tangible things that kids can visualize things that they can understand and then once they've got that understanding and can start talking about it, then you can introduce tools like tree diagrams and then you can start bringing in the actual concepts of probability mm -hmm. once they've got an understanding about it. I love the resource, um, If the World Was 100 People, have you seen that? Yes, really like that. exactly. Um, and the other day I was doing something with my year 12s on um, left-handed people. I think it was, I was doing some work on sampling with them. And then I just showed them a graphic which was 100 little people and then it highlighted one who was ambidextrous and I can't remember how many it was, it might have been nine or something, who were left-handed. Um, and those graphics are so good for communicating um, percentages and sort of understanding frequencies. Um, so yeah, I agree. Putting something in the context of 100 people is, is really powerful. And especially something like probability that's got so many counterintuitive results. Mm -hmm. And we know that as a population, we can be manipulated by statistics mm -hmm. and so on. So it's only natural. Our kids will, get, will misunderstand it. Presenting it in that way first, I thought, yeah, let's hold back on the language of probability till the end. Mm -hmm. Let's get them just thinking about numbers and visualising it. So mm -hmm. I like that. That was good. That's good. You should have got up earlier for that <laughs> session. session <job. laughs> anyway, but then but you then arrived. Yes. 
And then, by, by chance, we haven't coordinated this, we both chose the first uh, same first session, which was Anne Watson, previous podcast guest, and she was talking about variation. And it was a packed out room. Everyone was talking about this session. We got in there nice and early. We had seats. We were ready for it. So you, you lead the way on this one, Jo. Well, firstly, what, why did you choose the session? Um... I know variation's been around a long time, and Anne reminded us of that. It's nothing new. Um, sort of Shanghai ideas have sort of brought variation kind of, um, kind of into the headlines of math education lately. But it has been around a long time. Um, I have seen some great um, stuff about variation theory recently, including um, Naveen wrote Naveen. I don't know. I could, you're going to have to put the link to her blog on there. Yes, Conception yeah, yeah. of the good or That's something. Exactly yeah. Right, yeah. Um, she wrote a fantastic post about variation theory, and it, and it made me think that this is something where I can't write these questions because I don't feel I have the expertise. But I can definitely see the value in them, and particularly in Naveen's post, I was really sort of um, this really sort of sparked my interest in this. Um, now, um, Anne has done research into variation for years, and her um, her session was called. Um, well, it's, it's the, the session I signed up for was variation beyond the definitions and then she said she changed it to variation last post because she said this is the last of what she's got to say on this topic yeah, exactly. um, because she's done many many sessions on it over the years and she feels that she's kind of said everything that needs to be said on it um, um, but you know these ideas are still quite new to me and, and I thought um, it was it was really interesting that what she was talking about was the design principles from UK textbooks she was talking about exercises from textbooks and um, what um, what had influenced the writers in terms of their question design, yes. in terms of variation. And I thought it was quite interesting. She talked about how um, there are various things which make students um, discover underlying relationships. So she talked about just juxtaposition of items, sequential presentation, and the use of uh, materials or layouts. So the way that questions are laid out or the sort of sequence of questions mm. can help students to discover relationships. And then um, Anne then showed us a, um, a whole range of um, interesting exercises and she just basically let us explore them and talk about them. So we all had a lovely discussion about where, where the value we could see um, in each of the exercises. And to be honest, in some of them, um, I found it really hard to see the value in well, them. This, this is interesting. This, cause, so I've, um, listeners here, if you go to the podcast page on, on my blog, you'll see that I've put up four photos of four of the exercises that, that Anne gave us. And, and listeners will know I'm obsessed with, with variation and specifically this sequencing of questions to get kids to discover an underlying relationship. So me and Joe sat there and we were presented with the, with these um, exercises and immediately we liked one of them, didn't we? We were straight in. Do you remember the um, the formula one, the substitution one? Yes, that where, was fantastic. So I'm going to describe this. I mean, this isn't going to work audio. So have, I have, have tweeted it already if anyone wants to have a look. So. And have a look on the podcast page. So basically you, you started off with... You have, uh, a equals minus 1, B equals 2, C equals minus 3, D equals 0, and in fact E equals minus 2 as well. You don't need to remember those numbers, listeners. But the key thing here is, question 1 asked you to do C squared, then it was minus C squared, and then it was minus C, all in brackets, squared. So you got your three answers there, which were 9, negative 9, and 9, and then you had to then do C cubed, minus C cubed, and in brackets, minus C all cubed, and then to the power of 4, and so on. And that was great. I really like that because as we were doing it, we were thinking, weren't we? It was an automatic pilot when we were going through filling out those answers. And it really, for me, made me relate 
the uh, each uh, answer to the one that came before it and Anne made the point that the key to variation one of the keys is, is comparison you have to have something to compare it with and I could quite easily see how c squared compared to minus c squared compared to minus c all in brackets squared so I like that one you like that one as well Joe right? I loved that one it was fascinating yeah. then tell us one about one that you, you were or that we had questions about let's say. Um, I, I think it's just that there were some where um because we, we filled these in, you know, we, we answered the questions and then it, and there were some where it felt like, say, fractions and you, you know, working, working out fraction multiplications, where once you realise the pattern, you could just fill them all in really quickly without any thought. And I guess anything that doesn't require any thought, it's hard to see the value in. Yes. Now, th this was interesting. So, again, there'll be, you can have a look at the, the se sequence of examples um, on the podcast page. Basically, we add here... Two fifths of ten is four. Then it was two fifths of fifteen, which Joe correctly worked out to be six. Then we had uh, two fifths of twenty, eight. Two fifths of twenty-five, ten. Two fifths of thirty, twelve. But of course, that's going four, six, eight, ten, twelve. So correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe. But by the you weren't even relating it back to the question by the time you got to the last no. one. You just kind yeah. of once I saw there was a sequence, I just filled in. The and then it continued. Then we have three sixths of twelve is six. Three sixths of eighteen is nine. Three sixths of twenty-four is twelve. So it went six, nine. 12, 15, 18. And this for me was fascinating this because this is where I think I certainly have gone wrong with my early kind of experimentations with variation. And I think a lot of teachers um, possibly could fall into what I think is a mistake because that then becomes just filling the pattern. Yes. And if your aim of an activity like that is to get students to think hard about fractions of an amount, are they even realising after a while? Are they even thinking about fractions of an amount? Or are they just filling out the two times table, the three times table, and so on? Now, Anne described this as going with the grain. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, what, what's your thought, Joe? Like, if you gave... Well, firstly, would you give uh, your kids a, an exercise like that? And if so, what? how would you instigate them to think more deeply about it? Um, I mean, you talked about how... You know, you could you could have that that pattern, but then you need to sort of then skip a number of steps and see if they can generalize. Basically, that, I think that's what I was struggling with there was where the opportunity to generalize came up. And but people did raise this with Anne, and then she talked about how that would all then come back to the pedagogy. So that's where the teacher has to kind of know what they're doing. But then Anne um, didn't tell us about the pedagogy, and she did say that was you know in her session she wasn't going to talk to us about the pedagogy. And I suppose that's then leaves me with just a big question of I need to know how to do the teaching yes. to go with those exercises because at the moment I think I would struggle to see how that particular exercise was was helpful and, and how I would um, teach to make it helpful. Because it was interesting with that particular one and we'll, we'll do a, a second example in a, in a moment but a teacher pointed out didn't she and you were listening at this point Joe so you were straight onto this that that two-fifths of ten is four mm. two-fifths of fifteen is six that the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, that was the five times table, and your four, six, eight, 10, 12, that was your two times table. But I guess the question is, unless you've got the questions to tease that out of your kids, yeah. the kids could just breeze through this activity, just filling in a simple number-based pattern without at any point doing a fraction multiplication or reflecting on it. So I think when Anne's talking about the pedagogy, for me, surely it's about how do you compel kids to then reflect and yeah. look back afterwards. And she, she talked about having the opportunity to say what you notice and to explain what you notice. And in fact, there was a, um, someone in the room who said that she remembered doing exercises like these at school um, and feeling a little bit kind of cheated that she could just fill, in, fill them all in without any yes. thought. Um, so I suppose it's all about 
having the opportunity to spot patterns and talk about patterns. Um, it was interesting. Anne said something about it takes six weeks to change classroom culture. Yes. That was really interesting. She, like, she said that she's you know, absolutely sure that you can change the entire culture of a classroom in six weeks. So, you know, you can turn a classroom into one of looking at patterns and discussing things and, and saying what you notice. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, because I guess if you're doing an, an activity like that, which, again, as maths teachers and as mathematicians, it is interesting how where that pattern comes from and how it relates to the next sequence and so on. And I guess for me, if you want kids to notice that and think about that themselves, you have two options. Option one is that you explicitly question them about mm-hmm. it afterwards. Yeah. So what do you notice? Why is this the case? And so on. Mm-hmm. And option two, which is probably better, and what I think I'm speaking about, is you get the kids to start asking those questions themselves. Mm-hmm. So they, they, it's not enough for them to fill out a pattern. Mm-hmm. They see a pattern, they fill it out, and then they think, flipping heck, what, where's this pattern come from? Mm-hmm. Why? But I, I don't know about you, that's, that's hard to get kids thinking that way, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think uh, I think Anne's session left me with more questions about variation than I had before, yeah. um, which is a good thing. Um, and I, uh, you know, the sort of some of the stuff I've it was it was kind of a bit of a diversion of some of the stuff I've read and and what I thought um, variation was all about. Um, she she made another interesting point that, and I thought this was interesting that there's a danger that variations become a bit of a buzzword now. Yes. Everyone's chatting variation. I'm chatting, I mean, I'm guilty of this myself. Yeah. I'm chatting it left, right and centre. My, my wife's sick, sick of hearing about it. <laughs> but she, there's a, there is a definite danger, I think, Joe, that teachers will think, right, I'm doing variation today. I'm just going to use this variation. Yeah. And then <laughs> I made the point that unless you know what is the purpose of the activity that you're doing, mm-hmm. then why on earth are you doing it? And I think what really, one of my big takeaways is, that if I'm doing an activity like that with for, with my kids, mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure I've done it myself first to experience what the kids are feeling. Because if I can just fill out a pattern and not have to think, mm-hmm. then kids are going to do that. Yeah. So if I can do that, I then need to think, right, what, what would make me think about this? What questions mm-hmm. do I need to ask myself? So I'm going to make sure I ask them to, to the kids. And I think, and this is going to sound, I don't know if this is going to come out right, but you could imagine a kind of nightmarish future where variation goes dead big. You go on, the teachers are on going on tears. I'm going to download a variation PowerPoint on fractions and just give it to the kids. Yeah. And think magically by doing this sequence of questions, mm-hmm. kids are going to have a really great understanding. Mm. But I've just thought of this now. This is going to be controversial. It's almost, if you haven't thought through the sequence of questions and crucially if you haven't thought through what you're going to ask afterwards Mm -hmm. it's almost better for kids just to be presented with a random selection of questions because Mm -hmm. at least then they are forced to answer it in the Mm -hmm. way you want them to answer it as opposed to just filling in patterns if that makes sense so I'm, i'm making the big claim now variation in the wrong hands is deadly what do you think of that i think you're right and i think um I think that as it becomes more popular, you're right, people are going to start producing lots of resources and using it. And I think that's, I think that's probably happened with lots of things over the years, where things become popular and then they kind of use without thought because teachers are busy and they just roll these things out. And, yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, if, if you can just fill in a load of... If you can spot a pattern and fill in a load of answers and then you're done, 
then you haven't really learned anything. Um, whereas if it's used well, then it's incredibly powerful. Could be powerful, exactly. Yeah. So the, the the kind of case is still open for, for variation. We'll be returning to this uh, over the years on this podcast. And as I say, I'm still obsessed. It d- definitely gave us lots to think about on session. Absolutely, yeah. So I love that. Uh, right, so that was the only um, session because it was it's only a half day today. So what I thought we'd do for this one is we've actually a world exclusive here because we've got Joe Morgan, uh, who is you're running a session on Thursday. I am. Yeah. Is that right? And obviously, listeners to this podcast will be thinking, what what's Joe's session going to be on here? <laughs> so why don't you tell us, Joe? So what, what's the title of your session, and what what are you going to be talking about? Um, I'm doing a session on ideas that transform my teaching, um, and and the idea here is that. Um, I first joined Twitter four years ago, straight after the last Beck me, Beck me, <laughs> Brick me, Brick me, straight after the last Brick me. And, um, and in that four years, I have, um, I, I've changed a lot about what I do in the classroom. And some of them are just sort of subtle, seemingly kind of superficial changes. And some of them are quite, um, I think, fundamental changes. Um, but what I'm talking about in my session is... Um, kind of the main things I've changed that I think have, have made a difference and what I want people to do in the session is think about what they may have changed over the last four years and what they might change over the next four years so that when we all come to Brick Me uh, <laughs> 2022 um, we can then say about things that, that we've we've changed so I think um, and because I get so many ideas from Twitter so that's yes. kind of one of the, the main things I'm talking about is where I get my ideas from and, and why I change things and I feel at this conference a bit like there's lots of people here who do proper research and there's lots of um, very serious academics here Um, and I'm a teacher and I'm talking about kind of my little classroom research so where I try things out um, and I have a go and if it doesn't work I won't do it anymore and if it works then I'll do it the next year so it's like so I'm sort of talking about my little project so the first thing I'm talking about is my uh, folders where um, I've given up on exercise books and is this for all classes? Well, I only teach year 11 and sixth form this year. Yep. Um, and um, last year I taught year seven, year 11 and sixth form. And year sevens, I use exercise books. But um, everyone else, well, my sixth form have always had folders, so that's nothing new. Can I just ask, where would you draw the line there? If you had year nine, would you go? I would I would have it for every class I taught if I had the budget. And this is the problem. Yeah, ah, so um, it's that's not... That's the only thing stopping me. Right, yeah. it's not that year sevens would benefit more from exercise books. It's just no. more... A budget thing, so you're going to focus on the kind of older years. Well, only because I tried it with um, I tried it with year eleven last year, and then that means that I have my sheets ready. I have a sheet for every lesson, and this year all I've had to do is print them. So I haven't really had to spend any time planning year eleven lessons this year because so I've got what, it all printed. So, this so that all my students have a lever arch file, and they have um, every lesson at the beginning. They arrive in the classroom, and on their desk is an A4 sheet, double sided, and it's basically got the whole lesson on it. Right. So it's got a um, starter, and then it's got a gap where it says notes. And then it's got a exercise, and I don't write questions myself. I take them from from some things like CIMT or just Don Stewart stuff like that. Um, and then it mm, it will have say it might have another section for notes if I'm doing a bit more teaching, and then it will have another exercise, and it might have an extension at the bottom. And um, I, I fit I, all that onto a single sheet. And, and the kids aren't answering on the sheet. They are answering on the sheet. Sorry. Yeah. And it's always a single side, yeah, unless, sorry, a single sheet. Unless I'm doing a side. lesson, say, on vectors or something that requires lots of diagrams, right. and then I might go, and, and that, my photocopying bill is out of control, because I have 34 in the class, and I do that every yeah. single, they have four, maths four times a week, it's, a, it's an awfully big photocopying bill. Um, they're not, you know, a maths teacher, they're not going to sack me, I can get away with it. <laughs> um, but they, um, 
the so uh, because I wrote all those sheets last year they don't it's not taking me any time but if I was then going to roll this out to another year group then it's the lesson planning would be me making the sheet and finding the resources how many questions are on it kind of like would there be a case where you'd want kids to do like a load of almost drills essentially um, would, 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 well it's that, that kind of thing it's like if I'm doing a lesson on factorising quadratics then there's your standard factorising quadratics all on the sheet got it, got on it, got the sheet. And, and it's you know, I've got an example of I've got one of my very best student folders with me so I can actually and I've also got lots of it and in fact people can see examples on my blog mm-hmm. and people have previously asked me to share all my sheets which is difficult for me to do because it's not my You've material that, yeah I just course, you know but, um, so what happens is um, they will come and sit down and do the starter because that's they know that that's what they do um, and then I'll do my teaching and they will take notes and previously my students didn't take notes very well but there's a section that says notes yeah. and they write in that okay. section and then um, their book I work at an all-boys school I don't want a gender stereotype but I used to work <laughs> at a girls school where their books were beautiful and now um, books at my school are not um, don't look good and they are a state and there's no notes and they're messy and there's no pride in their work my class with their folders they, they take so much pride in their folders. Yes. Like, it just changes their attitude. It's like a maturity thing. It's like, they're like, well, you know, look, we've got folders. This is, this is really grown up and, and do serious. And just on a practical level, do they take the folders home? Or no, they, they leave them at the back of the classroom. And if they have home, what, what, if what's that? So homework will either be on Hegarty Maths or yeah. it will be a sheet and then they'll bring it back in and put it in their folder. Got it, got um, it, got it. And, and then bought a sheet for revision, they could take them home. That, so they, I did say as they all went home for Easter, don't forget to take your folders, yeah, guys. They've yeah, yeah, left yeah, them yeah. there. But I think when they go off on study leave, they'll take their Folders. Um, but they're, um, you know, I don't, I kind of don't expect students to revise from classwork anyway, mm, really. I, I don't, you know, there's plenty of other stuff they can revise from. But um, their folders are, I, I don't know, it's just, it's just, I think, because I've got, I've got a top set year 11. I want most of them to do A level maths next year. They, they are going to be well organized, they're going to be well yeah, practiced in how okay. to have a well organized folder. They're going to know what good maths notes look like, and and I don't know. I think it. I think it kind of sets them up for good practices at A level. So it hasn't that particular thing that that wouldn't have changed how you would have delivered a lesson previously, no. but it's just how they record and put their answers. I down think it's well. just it's led to them having um, more pride in their work. They yes. take maths really seriously. They're more mature. Um, I don't know. I just they before they had these scruffy books, and now they have these smart folders, and I think well, it's changed the attitude of my students. Let me ask you something, Joe. So one recurring theme on this podcast, and it's been a game changer for me is people chatting about centrally planned lessons oh, within yeah. a department yeah. so Danny Quinn's chatting yeah. it, Greg Ashman's chatting it, quite a, quite a few people would you would you advocate this so like you sit down as a head of department and you produce a sheet that every single year nine class mm-hmm. or whatever is going to use and you would direct your department to say this is the sheet you're using for this lesson maybe with a bit of a tweak for maybe you'll have three different versions yeah. of it for the sets and so on would you go down well, that the thing road? is I would hate that if someone wrote my, my lessons for me because I have my own Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? Like, Just the questions, though. Yeah, right? so, so like at the moment, I share my Year 11 sheets with... I've got a couple of teachers who borrow them when they mm-hmm. want them. So they're available on the shared drive, yeah, and some yeah. people use them. But I would absolutely hate to work in a department where I'm told exactly what to do, because, you know, I'm not a trained monkey, and I don't want to... What, what, where's the fun in that what, job? Do you know, what happens if they're really well thought out, like your sheets are? Um then I'd like to have them available if I want them, but I wouldn't want to be told to use them. Let me, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, okay? What happens if you're, it's your first year of teaching? Yeah. Um, and you have got this lady who's got a very well-established blog, very high-profile <laughs> teacher, and she's put a lot of time into designing these sheets, and she says to you, Joe, NQT Joe, 
here's a sheet, you've got to use this for your year 10 lesson. Yes, I think I'd still rather it was a strong recommendation rather than really? a compulsory. Okay, that's I'm not sure, I just think, um, I don't know, I figured, I, I, I think you have to, to become a good teacher, you have to kind of figure things out. Oh, I don't know. It but do you not stupid. figure them out better? I mean, I'm saying this as if I agree with this, but do you not figure things out better by seeing excellence? Yeah, and they can they can come into my lessons and see that and, and then say, oh, I'm going to use that in my lesson. But I think for me to tell them, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm really... Um, I'm, the reason I'm so hesitant on sort of um, being told what to do is that I would just not want anyone to tell me what to do. Sure. Like I would be... Um, you know, like even planning collaboratively with colleagues, my department are brilliant at um, chatting about what we're planning and showing each other resources, but we don't plan together because I just don't teach in exactly the same way as anyone yes. in my department, and I don't want to teach in the same way as everyone in my department because they do things I don't want to do. Yes. So I just, I guess I have my own way of doing things, and I just, I'm not, I just don't think you can be that sure that you're right. Like for me to be that overconfident that the way I'm doing it is is right, I just think that takes a bit of arrogance, doesn't it? To say, yeah, I'm doing, I'm so right that you all have to do what yeah. I'm doing. I don't know. Okay, I oh, don't that's know. interesting. Okay. I don't know. It's something I think so, about, but I don't. Know. Got it. Right. So we got <laughs> number one folders. Folders. Yes. Yeah, so I'm showing my folders, and then um, number two is. Um, I'm talking about the quizzes I use, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about quizzes because, like for example, Colleen Young is doing a whole session on quizzes yeah. at this conference. Quizzes isn't like these low stakes quizzes. That's another thing that's really taken off these last Absolutely, kind of yeah. year or so. And right? in fact, it was 2014, so four years ago was when I read Chris Bolton's blog on low stakes quizzing, and that's when I first picked up on the idea. And I start, and in fact, and I know you don't like this, but I use your diagnostic questions oh, don't get me started. That, I, that I paste onto a sheet, so I don't use them online. I copy them, I paste them, I don't write my own questions. Listeners, that is a bad <laughs> idea, okay? And I am... Um, but I give them a quiz every Friday, and they absolutely love it. My students live for that quiz. Right, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about this. So this, what the content for this quiz, where is it stuff they've done that week, is it? It is, and, and something it? I talk about in my conference session is that something is that I would like to have it half interleave stuff and half stuff I've done that week. But at the moment, it's just what they've done that week. Sure. So it's, um, and, and it's supposed, and it's, um, the main reason is, is it's informing me on whether I can move on. So on a Friday, on a, over the weekend, I'll mark it in 10 minutes, so quick to mark, and then I'll know whether I'm done with that topic, you know, whether so they got you, it. So it's every Friday, it happens. Yeah. How long does it take? 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah. You, and what is, is what's the rationale for the kids not marketing themselves? Is it you? You just you I just want I don't to want I, well I don't want to waste the lesson time for a start. But also right. I like to see the misconceptions, and yes. this is one massive um, drawback of any um, self marketing and peer marketing. I mean, my students self mark all their classwork. Yes. But during lesson, I'm looking over their shoulder all the time. Yes. Um, but I like to mark their quizzes because it really does tell me. I mean, I've seen and I'm, again something I'm talking about in my session is some of the really interesting misconceptions that I've only become aware of through quizzes. Ooh. And there was one I tweeted about um, a year or so ago and it was a shape that was split into um, four parts and it was something to do with they just had to basically the my year sevens didn't know that it was a third when it was they they were they got the, the idea mixed up about equal parts you know so yes. they, they were they were they were misunderstanding the idea of a quarter or something it was just so basic and I thought they got that like in my lesson on that where I did all the shaded shapes where where some of them had parts that weren't, weren't equal sizes I was convinced my students knew that until I gave them the quiz yes and they all got something very fundamental wrong in fact when I tweeted it I had someone reply saying 
making out that I made it up. He said, <laughs> yeah, he said yeah, no yeah, way yeah, did yeah. your students uh, select that answer yeah. because they would not think that. And then he went and gave the same question to his students and they did it too. That's a bit more like it. And, it was, um, and so I think that I mark them myself because it doesn't take long. Yep. You know, it's 10 minutes marking and, and it's just eye-opening for me. Yes. And in fact, I quote, uh, there's, a, there's another um, blog post that I talk about in my session and it's nothing to do with quizzes, but it was um, Nathan Craft, who is an American blogger. He wrote a piece four years ago on... Um, having whiteboard walls or like big whiteboards yes. and, and he wrote about how um, watching his um, students writing on the whiteboards he said it's like looking in the freaking matrix and and that's what I feel it's like when I mark quizzes it's like I can see everything yes. when I mark the quizzes like I, I know exactly what they're struggling with and I just it's so eye-opening let, let me ask you on practical levels then so you, you're sourcing the questions you diagnostic questions you use anything else no I just get them all from there <laughs> yeah. um, and you uh, record the marks anywhere I do you? but um, actually I, I don't think there's a huge amount of value in it me recording them really they record them on like a, they got a sheet they just write down their score but um, and if can, can I ask as well so you'd mark them over the weekend and then do you have is it like a specific thing like the start of Monday's lesson do you go yeah, through yeah I have I'm showing that in my session it's like a um, just one slide where I say how many people got an A how many people got a B and how many people got not yet which is something I got from Sarah Hagen who's an American blogger um, math equals love and she grades her student quizzes like that so they all want to get an A they're a bit annoyed if they got a B if they get a B it means they, they haven't quite got there yet yeah. and if they got a not yet it means they got less than half marks Yes. and then I used to give a, a reset test and then I'm just not organised enough to do that um, so if they have to do a Hegarty maths task on the on that topic got if they got or not yet so that's like an intervention and on that topic would you if there was a question that everyone had wiped out everyone would yeah. you go through oh that yeah so I go in fact I actually um yeah so I, I go through the quiz and I, I quickly read out the answers and I say um because that only takes a second and I say if you if anything on there you got wrong um, and, and I don't go through it now, then make sure you ask a friend during the lesson. Nice. But I'll go through the main the main mistakes. So there'll maybe be sort of four questions that I'll go through in detail. And I think that's, that's something I see quite a lot in lessons. In fact, something I've observed lately when I've been um, going around and seeing my colleagues teach. A lot of my colleagues will give the interleave starters or the retrieval practice. So they'll give, say, 10 mixed questions at the yeah. start of lesson. And then what I'm seeing quite a lot is that they will... Um, for a start, they'll stop when some students are only done two of the questions. Mm -hmm. And then they will say, right, does anyone, anyone want me to go through any of that? No, okay, on with the lesson. Um, but the going through, I mean, the going through the questions is the important bit. Yes. And I see, I think a lot of people skip that. So yeah, when I give my quizzes back, I don't care that there might be someone who has to sit for 30 seconds while I go through a question they got right. Yes. They can sit there for 30 seconds while I go through the main misconceptions. And I'll say to them, even if you got this one right, can you listen? Because this is a common misconception and you yes. all need to listen to this. So yeah, I go it's, through things. It's interesting. I've been, for a while now, I've, well, I've reached the conclusion that, it's like variation. I'm going to say another big quote here. Differentiation done badly is the worst thing ever. Yeah. And over-obsession with differentiating. Yeah. That if a kid shows a hint of understanding yeah. something, oh, don't no need for you to listen to this. Here, have some ridiculous oh, extension. Yeah. Terrible, right? Yeah. There is there is no harm, like you say, in a child sitting for thirty seconds, one minute, two yeah. minutes, listening to you, an expert, yeah. 
present something exactly how it should be presented and so on. And if they're thinking the exact same way, perfect. But the chances are they're not yeah. and they're going to benefit from the reinforcement. This is actually something that's come up with my folders. I hand out the sheet at the start of the lesson and while I'm doing my teaching bit and they're meant to be taking notes, there's always one boy in my class <laughs> who has started the exercise and he's not listening yeah, to me. And I yeah. had the same problem last year. One boy just doing the exercise. And so I have to say to him... I know that you know how to yes. do this. I know he's amazing. He's yes. going to get a grade nine. It's, he's brilliant. I'm, and it's like, you have to listen to me because I will say things that you don't know. I yeah. will say things about um, getting, how you're going to get marks in the exam or lose yes. marks in the exam. And I will say things from my experience that you don't know. Um, and they do get that. And I think if you're just really clear with them on why they need to listen, you know, I will tell you about common mistakes and you might make one of those mistakes one day, mm. even though I can see you understand this, but just bear with me because I've got some stuff to say. Um, I don't do differentiation. People often ask me that. Um, because, because my sheets, um, you know, I've got a top set, but they're working everything from a grade six to a grade nine. And then they, people say, oh, but how do you differentiate if every student gets the same sheet? And it's like, I have never in my life given different resources out. But you out. do, because you differentiate by the time it takes kids exactly. to go through. You right? I mean, you differentiate by, I mean, so my, my thing on differentiation is high challenge for all and extra support and scaffolding where needed and that's for me going around during yes. the lesson that's not in my instruction that's where I'll go and help the ones that need yes. helping and that's differentiation and I'd take that any day of the week ahead of what I used to do which is essentially be like one of them flyer hangouts <laughs> on the screen during about 20 you know again you've shown a hint of getting that get off no, our no, worksheet have no. another you know yeah terrible but all right well that's number two <laughs> <laughs> okay very quickly on the other, no, on the other two because they're um they're quite quick I'm, I'm talking about uh, mathematical methods that I've changed. Yeah, go on. Um, Tell me some of these. So, I mean, I've done separate conference sessions on these before. So, for example, I don't teach highest common factor in the way that most teachers do. I have a method for that. Go on. Um, what so is I, it? I've blogged about this before. In fact, my most read blog post ever is um, with sort of something ridiculous, like 50,000 views or something. Right. It's crazy. Is on um, uh, different methods for highest common factor. Um, and I used to teach the Venn method. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the only reason I ever taught that was not because I put any thought into what the best method is, yeah. but because on my PGCE, my mentor said, do you know how to find a highest common factor? Because I was teaching it the next week. And I said, I haven't really thought about it. And she said, oh, do it with the Venn. Yeah. And then I just taught it like that for And then just for years. listeners, this is where you put all the prime factors of the two numbers and then those that they've got in common go in the intersection yeah. and you multiply those together yeah. and you get, what could be wrong with that? I love it, I love it. <laughs> and they, they kind of, they find normally with the, the middle bit, but then students can often not remember how to find the lowest common multiple. Yes. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the Venn method, but the method that, um, so a, um, a student at my previous school taught one of my colleagues this method. So right. she'd come from another country with this method. She taught him and then we all started using it. And all you do is you write the two numbers together. So say you've got um, uh, 24 and 36 okay. and you write them at the top and then you just find any factor, yeah. common factor of those. It doesn't have to be prime. And I think this is the difference. Okay. We, don't, we don't need primes here. Yeah. So you do any factor, um, I'm going to do this in my head. So let's say four. So you write a four at the side and you divide both those numbers by four. So we've got six and nine. Got it. So first, 24 and, and 36. 36. Yeah. So then I divide them by four and you get six and nine. Got it. And then you say, right, I've got another factor in common. They've both got a three in. So I write a three at the side and I'm left with two and three. Oh, so you divide the, the solution yeah. to yeah. that. By another factor. Okay, got it. It's really it. better if you look at this no, like diagram. This. No, I anyway, and the two. So that's your highest common factor. Is the two number? The two. You multiply them together. Basically, it's the same idea. They just don't have to be prime. Oh, so you find a common factor, 
divide your two original numbers by that common factor, get two new numbers. Oh, yeah, and then do it again and until, until you end up with two numbers by that common factor. And then you're keeping a record of all these divisions yeah. that you've done, yeah. multiply all those things together, yeah. and you get... Oh. It, sounds, it doesn't sound good, but it's great when you actually do it. And then you end up with this L shape for the lowest common multiple, and, that's, and it's so easy. It's just really, it's, oh, you have to see it written down. It's genius. Have you got, and this is on the blog post, is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, okay. In fact, it was the second blog post I ever wrote was just on that on method. That. And then I wrote a whole bigger post on different ways of doing oh, it. Like it. But there's things like that. And like, I do my algebraic division differently. I do my, um, I do my binomial theorem, but different. Give, give me one more, give me one more, some of the you've Well, I, I am talking about things that, also I'm talking about things that I've tried that I don't think have worked very well. Oh, good. Um, okay, so well. for example, I'm talking, uh, quadratic sequences and finding the nth term, which yes. students find really challenging. There's two ways of doing that. And I tried a different way last year and I'm not 100% convinced it was a good idea. I think I confused them because they'd already been, the previous year in year nine, they'd been taught one way. So I think teaching them another way yes. left them with these two methods in their head yeah. and then they confused the two. Yeah, choice isn't always a good thing. I mean, thing, with right? the quadratic sequence, you know, you've got your sequence and everyone knows that you find the first difference and then the second difference. Yeah. And then when you halve that second difference, you've yeah. got the um, coefficient of the n squared. Yeah. Um, and then you could... Um, you could find the zeroth term to get the plus yeah, C, yeah. and then you could say, um, basically, A plus B plus C will always equal the first term, and you can show why that is, and it's quite easy right, to understand okay. why. But, the, but they'd all been taught the other way of doing it, which is where you um, you find the um, you find you get the n squared coefficient, and then you write that sequence out, uh, and you compare the two. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the thing is, that that's that's an example of where I've tried a new method, and then I thought, actually, I'm not sure I teach that one again. Yes. So, and then I've got other examples like uh, the worst thing I ever did with Year Seven, where I had a mo I had a moment of craziness last year, and um, I was going to teach solving equations, and I saw in a textbook or something online, I saw the, the flowchart way of solving oh, equations. I know. Yeah. And then after two lessons of doing that, I was thinking, well, they're really good at this. Yeah, it works But this really doesn't well, right? work <laughs> <laughs> for lots of other cases, an X on both sides, for example. Yeah. And I was like really kicking myself because then I tried to undo it and teach them balancing, which I should have done from the first place. And, and now I've broken them. Those, yeah. they will, they'll never be able to solve an equation. Yeah. Oh. Oh my god! I broke it's, those it's a lesson everyone's got to go through. Though, yeah, right? but so so I'm you know I'm talking about methods I've tried that have worked well and things where I have tried it and I regret it and it's because I didn't do enough checking and thinking yes. about it. So I, we must never rush into a new method. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, and then so that's um, I've done whole conference sessions on methods before, so okay. I'm not you know I could I could talk for hours on methods. And then my final thing is just about. Things that are now standard features of all my lessons. Um, it's you know I, I've taught kind of direct instruction for for years, and I've always done the kind of I do, we do, you do model, the gradual release model, yeah. where I will give an example. I then might do another example where I might ask a couple of ideas along the way, and then it's all down to them. Um, and I've been to see a lesson recently where a teacher her first example she asked the students for every single step. So the example ended up taking sort of half an hour for her to go through mm. because every word she said, she was asking um, she was asking a different student to, yes. to give that. So, you know, I don't teach like that. And I'm, then just on that, you have the problem that what on earth happened? Well, what happens if the kid gets it right? That doesn't tell you about any of the yeah. kids. But what on earth happens if the kid gets it well, wrong? Well, that's the thing, because the, the example I saw was fascinating because... 
the, they were getting it right, this whole method. It was a really long question forming and solving an equation. But they were using really inefficient algebra. Yes. And, 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 so they, and then she was writing that on the board. So everyone was then looking at this really, yeah, like, not yeah, great ways of doing things. So, you know, I, I, so my feedback to her after the lesson was, no, you do it. No, you're the teacher. Yeah, you do it. Yeah, and, yeah. and they can watch you do it. And it would have been quicker. You would, you know, people would have not, you know, because a lot of them, they weren't, they weren't paying attention because it was taken too long. Um, so anyway, it was nice. It's nice to sort of, in, I've always taught like that, but it's nice that in recent, uh, in recent years, it's kind of, I've had it more and more confirmed that it's okay for me to, to do the direct instruction thing. Yes. That's become something that I don't kind of, I used to feel a bit sort of guilty about it in a way. It's still controversial though, right? You'll still get people who... Yeah, not who... in my mind, but yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it is controversial. I'm very happy with it. Um, and, then, um, and, then, and then I'm talking about how I put etymology in my lessons a lot. So I've, I rarely introduce a new keyword without talking about where it comes from, oh, or what it links really? to. I do a lot of that. Can you and I love that. Um, so I did. Um, so I had a job interview recently, and I had, was asked to teach percentages. So I just, I, I just asked them um, if they could tell me what what percent is, um, because it's something they all think they know. But do they mm-hmm. actually know that it's you know for for every hundred or you know the sort of the link to the word hundred? And then they got that, and I said, right. So where else have you heard the word cent? And it's only two minutes of the lesson, yeah. but I think it's enrichment. You know, okay. it's like me. It's a little bit like it's not. It might help their understanding, but even if it doesn't help their understanding, it's just nice to have in the lesson a yes. little bit of enrichment. And so someone said cent, like as in American money, and it's like, yeah, that's right, because there's 100 cents in the dollar. Yeah. And then someone came up with centimetre, and then it's like, yes, this is a good conversation. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, yeah. So then that could then go on forever, so it can't, because I haven't got time for that. But I just think these little bits of... And like when I talk about binomial, I talk about how bi is the, you know, relates to the word too, and we talk about that... And then nomial is sort of a name or term, and we say, look, this is a this is a binomial, and it's got two terms in the bracket. I'm going to do a binomial expansion. Nice. Um, and so I always now just spend a couple of moments mentioning the words, and I think sometimes it does help with their understanding. And even if it doesn't, it's just nice to know. And they're always fascinated. I've never had a student not fascinated by my little etymology bits of the lesson. And I, when I say, whenever I say, oh, and this comes from the Latin, they're all really impressed. Latin, miss? Wow. It's really oh, good. Okay. Yeah, so I always do that. And then I'm going to end with a few bits on animations and some animations that I like to show and how I use them just as part of my teaching. I use animations quite a lot. Got it. So that sounds gosh, absolutely... I just talked far too much that about that. That sounds brilliant. That's probably longer than the session itself. But that sounds absolutely brilliant session. Also. That's super. Um, well, to, to wrap things up, what are we what are we looking forward to tomorrow? So we're going to be back same time tomorrow night recording this this podcast. But who are you seeing tomorrow? I am. I'm really Don't looking forward to tomorrow because I have got. Um... Well, for a start, you, you, I mean, you've got all this mapped out. So the listeners need to know here that. <laughs> Joe doesn't just have a normal um, kind of uh, agenda. She's even got time to get changed in there. You've got, you've got Bill to go <laughs> yes, to the okay, toilet. I've written an itinerary got, you've, you've where got I've everything. got every minute of my day. Now, tomorrow's a big day for me because it's the MAAGM. And I am being, I'm going to become, officially become a council member of the MA, which is really exciting. What's your official role? Um, I am the chair of the Publicity and Media Committee. 
Um, um, and I'm really excited about that. So that is like, that's a big deal for me because um, it's all voluntary and I'm giving up some time for something I think is massively important. Like I really support the MA. Um, I've, I'm going to some great sessions tomorrow. I still am a bit undecided about some of them. Well, let's do, um, let's do one at a time. Let's go for who are you going for? Nine o'clock till 10 o'clock. I'm going to see um, Carol Knights from the NECTM talking about challenging topics in uh, GCSE maths. Nice. And I'm for that one, I'm going to Paul Metcalf. A Very Brief History of Problem Solving, 1982, the year I was born, listeners, to 2017. <laughs> what about uh, 10 past 10 till uh, 10 past 11? So I'm going to Charlie Strip, um, talking about changes to maths education in England. What's happened and what can we learn from it? Nice, Charlie's very, very good. Um, I'm down to two here, but the one I think I'm going to go for is after Maths Comfo, we actually did our Conference Takeaway podcast, and when I saw Bernie Westercott using manipulatives, oh, yeah. I thought I need to get mad around these manipulatives because I think I'm going to interview Bernie for the podcast. So I'm going to Michael Anderson's using manipulatives to enhance understanding in secondary mathematics. Because hmm. I think that might be quite interesting. That would be good, yeah. All right, what about uh, the big one, Session D? So this is an hour and a half. Yeah. Ah, now I'm going to pop up maths, which is about things like... Uh, hexaflexagons which I think are really fun I'm running an enrichment week where I have to um, I have to basically get my students making these and I'm not very crafty I'm terrible at things like this do you reckon there would there be a potential that you could come up with something from that session that the listeners could try live (laughs) that's your challenge I think think on a podcast it's quite hard to uh, demonstrate I think it would be doable I think it would be doable Um, that one again I'm in two minds I'm leaning towards developing excellence in mathematics which is uh, delivered by Simon Singh of Famous Last Theorem fame. So Mm. we'll we'll see what happens there with that one. Um, Then we've got a break, and then we've another hour. God, it's a busy one. Another hour and a half session. What are you doing there? Um, so you're speaking in that one, aren't you? Oh, with, with Andrew Taylor, yeah. With Andrew yeah. Taylor. But so that... I'm either coming to yours, or oh, the thing is, <laughs> I'm actually, I booked to go to yours, but then someone's told me that David Aitchison, talking about fact and fiction in the history of mathematics, apparently he is an incredible speaker, so I'm a bit torn there. No, I'm giving you, I'm giving you permission <laughs> and even direction to go to that, because me and Andrew Taylor are just chatting through the same old nonsense, we always do. So yeah, go, go to that one, Joe, and then come back and tell us. And then, um, then tomorrow you've got your big meeting. Yeah. That'll be after that. Yeah. And then I think then we'll be recorded. Have, have a quick bit of tea, and then we'll uh, record our podcast. And then probably. we've got a quiz. And then we've got the pub <laughs> quiz. So we'll talk a little bit more about that because hopefully we'll have finalised our team by this time tomorrow. <laughs> so we can tell you who we've got lined up for that team, and then we can tell you the following day exactly how we got on. So, Joe, I think that concludes our takeaways from day one of Brick Me. That is definitely going to catch on the more the more we say that. Absolutely, and we're going to the bar now. So that's and we nice. are going to we are going to the bar now. So, I hope you found that useful, listeners. Send us a little uh, tweet if you have. If there's anything you want us to kind of focus on and discuss. And all it remains for me to do is to firstly thank Jo for giving up her time. She's got a glass of wine. That's a payment <laughs> payment for doing this. Um, and thank you, the loyal listeners, for keeping listening. And we shall return same time tomorrow night with more conference takeaways from Brick Me Day 2. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Bye.